Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, before we get started today, I just want to very briefly bring your attention to the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It was released a couple months ago. It's our comprehensive how-to for policymakers, especially at the federal level, but also for state governments as well. Um, so our speaker today, Ted Galen Carpenter, is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy, Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He is the author of eight and the editor of ten books on international affairs. And uh, I'd like to briefly highlight just two of them today. Uh, his most recent book is Smart Power Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America, which uh, is honestly a really wonderful primer on uh, a host of foreign policy issues and uh, especially a better direction for U.S. grand strategy. So I would highly recommend that one to you. And uh, in 1994, Dr. Carpenter wrote this book, uh, Beyond NATO, Staying Out of Europe's Wars. Um, it's actually one of five books that Dr. Carpenter has written on NATO, and uh, so he's probably one of the foremost experts on the subject, uh, perhaps in the world, certainly in Washington. Um, so as we're about to hear the arguments he, read, he made in this book 15 years ago are at least as relevant today and probably much more so. Dr. Carpenter is a contributing editor to The National Interest, serves on the editorial boards of Mediterranean Quarterly and the Journal of Strategic Studies, and is the author of more than 350 articles and policy papers. His articles have appeared in all variety of publications, and he is a frequent guest on radio and television programs around the world. Dr. Carpenter received his Ph.D. in U.S. Diplomatic History from the University of Texas, and he has been an invaluable contributor to the Cato Institute since at least 1985. After his remarks, we will have a discussion period, so uh, make sure you stick around for that and uh, have some good questions ready for us. Dr. Carpenter. Thanks very much, Kurt. Uh, NATO is, of course, about to celebrate its 60th birthday uh, tomorrow. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of celebration. If you listen to NATO officials, the alliance has never been more important than it is today. And if you listen to U.S. officials, the alliance is absolutely central to U.S. security and U.S. foreign policy objectives. Now, it seems like... Uh, I have been writing about NATO almost forever. Um, I, one of my earliest works was a, a book, an edited volume, NATO at 40, Confronting a Changing World, which was published uh, just a few weeks after the opening of the Berlin Wall. And the clear indications that the Soviet Empire was unraveling. And uh, my most recent study, uh, Policy Analysis, which is available outside, NATO at 60, a hollow alliance. I have, uh, in some of my nightmares, a feeling that I'm eventually going to be writing a work uh, with the title NATO at 80, the decrepit dinosaur. This thing just doesn't seem to go away. Uh, we have to examine NATO's original purpose, its original rationale, both official and unofficial. The original purpose of the alliance, as uh, stated by uh, NATO's first Secretary General, Lord Ismay, was to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, 
and the Germans down. And I think that uh, was a pithy summary of the rationale for NATO. On the one hand, uh, this was a vehicle for not only U.S. leadership of the transatlantic relationship that emerged after World War II, but assured U.S. dominance of that relationship. The goal of keeping the Russians out was fairly obvious. It, it wasn't so much the, the great fear that the Russian tanks would roll f- through the Fulda Gap and sweep to the Atlantic, although that uh, possibility couldn't be ruled out entirely. I think the greater concern was that the Soviet Union uh, would be able to intimidate democratic Europe, particularly uh, during the first decade or so of the Cold War, when Western Europe was uh, still war-ravaged, weak, and in many cases demoralized. This mission made sense uh, during the uh, initial stages of the Cold War. I believe that it was never really the optimal arrangement from the standpoint of American interests, that we paid an excessive price to assure our dominance of the transatlantic relationship, that a better model would have been to encourage the development of a strong European alliance with linkage to the United States, but without formal U.S. membership and certainly without uh, the United States expected to play the leading role in the alliance year after year after year. What developed uh, over the decades was both uh, U.S. officials becoming very accustomed to this dominant role um, and actively encouraging European dependence on the United States and discouraging European initiatives, particularly anything that smacked of an independent initiative that might create a separate pole of power in world affairs. And for the Europeans, it became all too comfortable to free ride on the U.S. security guarantee, to underinvest in defense, and to look to the United States always as the solution to Europe's security problems, rather than taking responsibility for the overall security of the region. Nevertheless, during the Cold War, uh, the NATO alliance was a reasonable arrangement from the standpoint of America's best interests. With the demise of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe and ultimately at the end of 1991, the demise of the Soviet Union itself, the rationale for NATO uh, simply became irrelevant. Uh, Certainly the part about keeping the Russians out had become irrelevant, and the part about keeping the Germans down was just hopelessly obsolete by that time. If the Germans could not be trusted in terms of playing a significant role by 1991, one had to ask when could Germany be trusted. So that basically left NATO as uh, the vehicle for perpetuating U.S. domination. And U.S. and NATO bureaucrats scrambled to find an alternative mission for NATO after the end of the Cold War. And some of these suggestions were, I have to admit, extremely creative, uh, if not unintentionally humorous. 
My personal favorite was a suggestion from a former assistant U.S. Secretary of State, no less, that NATO would be highly relevant to coordinate environmental policies and student exchanges. Why one would need a military alliance to do these things was left a trifle unclear. But the continuation of NATO is, uh, I think, one of the uh, best examples of public choice economics and institutional self-preservation. And believe me, when it comes to self-preservation, the instinct for self-preservation by individuals is nothing compared to the instinct for preservation on the part of bureaucracies. The next time a bureaucracy, domestic or international, decides to go out of business when its mission ends or becomes irrelevant will be the first time. And NATO is absolutely a case study in this. The scramble for an alternative mission and ultimately the decision that uh, the way to avoid irrelevance was to enlarge the alliance, to bring in more members, and in some very vague way to emphasize NATO's political role rather than its military role. And so here we come after three rounds of enlargement, uh, bringing in uh, a total of uh, 12 new members, and uh, NATO, on the surface, is a very impressive organization, larger than ever before, and certainly, if one listens to the officials, even more relevant than it was during the Cold War era. It holds a variety of events, and uh, you know, there are conferences galore here in the United States and throughout Europe. But when I look at NATO, I'm reminded of Gertrude Stein's famous comment about Oakland. There is no there there. This is superficially a very impressive organization, but increasingly it is a hollow shell. There isn't much substance behind this facade. In fact, I had uh, one colleague who I think aptly described it as a Potemkin alliance, a really impressive facade, but almost nothing behind it. There are several problems with the alliance in its current form. And I'm going to describe them in order and then discuss them one by one. One is a lack of seriousness uh, about a good many security issues. Uh, exemplified, I think, by NATO's, and I'm going to be charitable about this, stumbling performance in Afghanistan. A second problem is a lack of cohesion regarding key policy issues among members of the alliance. That is most evident with regard to policy toward Russia, but again, that's not the only place where there are increasing fissures in the ranks of the alliance. A third problem is that uh, despite NATO's enlargement, if you take a look at many of the members that have been added, they are not even arguably serious military assets. And in fact, many of them um, carry a lot of dangerous strategic baggage. And then finally, 
and I think perhaps the most serious, an alarming decline in the military capabilities, the military spending levels among NATO's traditional uh, main European members. Let me take those one by one. The lack of seriousness, very evident with the Afghanistan mission. And this is a source of frustration uh, with the U.S. military commanders. Uh, They have been reasonably diplomatic in public, including the current uh, national security advisor for President Obama, General James Jones. But I can tell you privately, the military leadership on this side of the Atlantic is furious at many of the NATO allies. Yes, NATO invoked Article 5 immediately after the attacks of 9-11. Article 5, of course, is the provision proclaiming that an attack on one member is an attack on all. And NATO countries um, began to agree to send military units to Afghanistan. That all looked very good, and on a symbolic level, it was quite impressive. However, with the notable exceptions of Britain and Canada, partial exceptions of the Netherlands and a couple of other countries, those military deployments have ranged from marginally useful to absolutely useless. Many of the governments have placed so many restrictions, so many caveats on their deployment, one wonders why they have even bothered sending troops. Some of the countries refuse to allow their troops to participate in night missions because those are dangerous. An even greater number refuse to station their troops in any area where, well, combat might take place and where the troops might actually prove useful. Majority of the NATO governments participating in the Afghanistan mission seem to regard the primary functions of their troops as nation builders in uniform, engaging in some very interesting social engineering experiments in Afghanistan, what one a foreign policy critic once described as foreign policy as social work, but not playing any kind of meaningful role from a military standpoint. A number of NATO leaders have described the Afghanistan mission as the litmus test of NATO's relevance in the 21st century. If this truly is a test of NATO's relevance, NATO as an alliance is failing that test and failing rather spectacularly. The second point, the second problem, the lack of policy cohesion. I mentioned that that is most evident with regard to policy toward Russia, and I'll come to that in a minute. But I don't want to imply that that's the only source of the divisions within the alliance. It's not. One can see sharp policy divisions on an assortment of issues. Uh, For example, policy toward Kosovo, where a number of NATO countries, despite intense pressure from the United States, have declined to recognize Kosovo's independence. Uh, By the way, I think that being the correct policy. 
We see it with policy toward the Middle East, and in particular the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where the United States, as usual, has strongly backed Israel in a stance that I don't think is going to change all that much with the new administration. And many of the European allies regard the United States as hopelessly biased in that dispute. And uh, there are some Europeans, in fact, who contend that the United States is a policy captive of the Israeli government. The temptation over the past eight years has been to attribute these divisions within the alliance to the existence of one George W. Bush. And certainly that was a factor. Uh, President Bush could be an arrogant and abrasive individual, and he was surrounded by many advisors who were even more arrogant and abrasive, dismissive of the Europeans, and uh, almost ostentatiously unilateral in terms of the policies they pursued. But I think it would be a mistake to assume that now that President Bush is no longer in the Oval Office, everything is just fine in the alliance, and we're not going to have serious divisions. Already we're getting pushback from the European members of NATO against the Obama administration's request for more troop deployments in Afghanistan. And to me, the European reaction is not surprising. Uh, after all, if you take a look at public opinion polls in European country after European country, there is a notable absence of support for deploying more of their troops to the conflict in Afghanistan. I think we're going to find out rather quickly that the policy fissures in the alliance are far more fundamental than just resentment against an insensitive and abrasive U.S. administration, that the Obama honeymoon with Europe may be surprisingly short in duration. The policy divisions most evident with regard to policy toward Russia uh, we've seen this emerge gradually over the last several years. It really came to a head following the uh, military conflict between Russia and the Republic of Georgia uh, this past summer. What emerged uh, was almost a, a uh, three-part division within the alliance. The, most of the newer members of NATO from Central and Eastern Europe, wanted the alliance to take a very strong stance against Russia. And that's not surprising. I mean, if, if you had to ask which NATO members are likely to be nervous about uh, the developments that have occurred in Russia over the last several years, not surprisingly, those that are the farthest to the east, that are closest to Russia, are going to be the most nervous. These were also the countries that were highly enthusiastic about admitting <coughs> both Georgia and Ukraine, to membership. On the other hand, many of the more traditional members of NATO, the Western European members, uh, not only dragged their feet with regard to offering a NATO membership to Ukraine and Georgia, but they advocated a very soft-line policy in response to the Russian-Georgia war. Oh, yes, diplomatic protests, and oh, yes, we do have to postpone meetings between NATO 
and Russian officials for a while. But you almost got the sense of them tapping their foot, waiting for this interval to pass so that they could get on with a normal relationship with Moscow. Uh, Those countries also, I think, are the most sensitive to Europe's dependence on Russia for natural gas supplies, Um, a point that Russia rather crudely emphasized uh, this past winter during one of the coldest stretches of the winter, using its dispute with Ukraine over pricing issues to send a not very subtle message to Western Europe about the continent's dependence on Russia for that commodity. The United States has been sort of in the middle. Uh, Under President Bush, U.S. policy definitely leaned toward the position advocated by the East European countries, but U.S. policy never went quite that far. Uh, The United States clearly did not want any kind of nasty confrontation with Russia, particularly one that uh, could have a military dimension. Under President Obama, there are already early signs that U.S. policy is now much closer to the views of the Western European countries than its East European allies. Uh, The meeting between President Obama and Russian President Medvedev I think was very clear uh, uh, on the part of the U.S. an effort to have a rapprochement with Moscow and and one as quickly as possible. Those kinds of divisions within the alliance are not going to go away anytime soon. And I think most important, they they make it awfully difficult to develop uh, coherent, unified policies on very, very important issues. The third problem, adding new members. Uh, The United States, in particular, seems to have had an attitude with NATO that bigger is automatically better. The more members we add, uh, the better the alliance becomes. That is, I think, very much an illusion, particularly from a military standpoint, even the first round of enlargement was, was highly questionable. The second and third rounds uh, almost defy comprehension from the standpoint of serious security calculations. I've noted that uh, seven of the members that have been added in the last two rounds of expansion are so small, are such minuscule military factors that they barely even register. Those seven members spend collectively on their militaries in a year less than the United States spends in Iraq in two weeks. They are not allies. They are not serious security players. They are client states. They are security dependents. Now, that would be bad enough if they didn't carry some highly negative strategic baggage, but many of them do, uh, particularly the Baltic republics, um, where the relationship, shall we say, with Russia is, is contentious at best. If the alliance would be uh, bold enough to add Ukraine and Georgia to this mix, I think the tensions with Moscow would grow dramatically. As we saw with Georgia, the, the, the country has already been embroiled in one armed conflict with Russia. One would have to anticipate a serious danger of future 
conflicts. And this underscores, uh, I think, a particularly troublesome point. Those who have advocated not only perpetuating NATO but enlarging it eastward have an implicit assumption that the security guarantees contained in Article 5 will never be challenged. We will never have to face the agonizing decision of whether to try to protect a small and vulnerable treaty member or to back away and lose all credibility. Why? Because the NATO alliance is so impressive, no countries, and not even Russia, would dare challenge that security commitment, dare molest an alliance member. For all the talk of NATO being increasingly a political organization, to me there is no doubt that NATO's small, exposed, easternmost members do not regard NATO as primarily a political organization. Yes, it is that. It's a nice badge of honor. It's also a vehicle that's helped them get into other Western institutions, most notably uh, the European Union. But for them, the key relevance of NATO remains Article 5. It remains the security linkage to the United States. And they certainly expect assistance if trouble should ever break out. Indeed, as we found with the Russia-Georgia war, Georgia, which was not an official member of NATO, but considered itself very much an ally of the United States and a future member of NATO, expected the U.S. and its NATO allies to ride to the rescue when Russian troops advanced into Georgian territory. Indeed, reporters uh, cited comments time and time again from Georgian refugees, including military forces streaming away from the front, who were asking, where is NATO? Where is the United States? Clearly, they expected to be defended, and so too would the Baltic republics and other small NATO members. However, Henry Kissinger uh, put it very, very well once, when he said, great powers do not commit suicide for allies. There is a limit about how much risk any prudent American president would take in response to an attack on a small NATO member. While the United States would want to preserve its credibility and would certainly dislike Russian aggression westward, I find it extremely doubtful that an American president would risk a military confrontation with possible nuclear implications. Then finally, we come to the final problem with NATO. And as I said at the beginning, I think the most serious problem, and that is the decline, indeed the, the free fall, in military spending and military capabilities of NATO's key traditional European members. Let me just give you a, a few indications of what's happening. Spain, for example, devoted 1.8% of its gross domestic product to defense in 1989. By 2008, it was down to 
0.73%. For Italy, 1989, 1.94% of GDP on the military. Not exactly breaking the budget even then, by the way. But by 2008, it was down to 0.96%. What about Germany? Let's remember the Federal Republic of Germany was the frontline state for NATO during the Cold War. 1989, Germany spent 2.27% of GDP on the military. By 2008, it was down to a pathetic 1.19%. Even France and Britain, countries that have held up a bit better in terms of their bargain uh, for mutual defense. France has gone from 2.98% of GDP in 1989 to 1.54%. Britain, 3198 in 1989, a fairly healthy level, now down to 233 And the spending does not really convey the extent of the decline. Uh, the lack of effective military modernization, the shrinkage of the troop levels, number of planes, number of ships, and so on, has reached alarming proportions. The gap in military capabilities between the United States and its principal NATO allies, which has always been a bit of a troubling issue in the alliance, that gap has now grown to be a chasm. U.S. officials as far back as 2001 and 2002 were warning that joint military enterprises with the NATO allies were becoming difficult and might soon be impossible given that enormous gap in capabilities. What we have seen is that the free-riding problem, the free-riding behavior of the European allies that was an issue throughout the Cold War era with the periodic burden-sharing controversies and constant U.S. hectoring of the Europeans, do more, spend more, but don't make any independent decisions. Do more, spend more to support our policies. Thank you very much. That that problem of burden-sharing has now become much, much worse. The European members of NATO, for all of their numbers, for all of their impressive economies are increasingly irrelevant militarily. It's difficult to imagine how the alliance is going to play an effective role going forward given that reality. And one already sees the U.S. tacitly maneuvering around this problem. Uh, one analyst of NATO describes the alliance as increasingly like a union hiring hall where the U.S. comes when it wants to get allies for a mission and it's uh, the, the, the euphemistic term is coalitions of the willing and uh, basically they put together an ad hoc coalition to deal with a particular military venture. Well again, one can do that without the elaborate structure of an alliance. NATO, again, is not particularly relevant to U.S. security policy and to the security challenges of the 21st century. I think one could argue that NATO is both too 
small and too large. It's too large in the sense that we're acquiring all sorts of members that are not capable of playing significant security roles. And it's too small in the sense that unless we're willing to bring just about everybody in, including Russia, NATO enlargement automatically divides Europe. As much as NATO officials may say, that is not our intent, we're not doing that, the reality is if NATO expands eastward and includes just about everybody, but Russia automatically remains on the other side of that line, the U.S. and its allies are in fact dividing Europe. We should finally move beyond NATO. NATO served its purpose during the Cold War, but this is a very different security environment. And we need new security arrangements. At the top of the list, it is time for Europe to grow up in terms of its security behavior, to stop free riding on the United States, and to take responsibility not only for their own defense, but for the overall security and stability of the European region. The United States is not going to become disinterested in Europe, but it's also true that we have a lot of other interests in other parts of the world. And U.S. officials implicitly, um, whether it's fair or not, seem to be regarding Europe as more of a strategic backwater these days, a region that's relatively quiet, whereas East Asia and especially South and Central Asia in the Persian Gulf most definitely are not quiet regions. I think you're going to find the U.S., whether officially or not, de-emphasizing its NATO commitments going forward. That's not necessarily a bad thing, because I think that will change the incentive structure. As long as the United States is willing to bear most of NATO's military burdens, uh, the European countries seem perfectly content with that arrangement, where they can carp from the sidelines, complaining about U.S. policy, but enjoying an enormous annual multi-billion dollar defense subsidy that spares their governments from making difficult decisions on spending. That decisions that would certainly create a lot of domestic controversy. The reality is NATO is an institutional dinosaur. It was created to wage the Cold War. It was relevant during the Cold War. It is not relevant today. And NATO bureaucrats and their supporters can pretend otherwise. But again, despite how impressive this organization might be superficially, it is more and more a hollow alliance. It is time to move beyond that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.